This is the Woodland Hills Family Church Podcast. Our desire is to inspire you and your family to become fully devoted followers of Christ. Now, enjoy today's message with Adam Donier. Passion. If you looked up the word in any secular dictionary, it would be defined as the sufferings of Christ between the night of the Last Supper and His death. The word passion literally originates from the King of Kings. Driven by unconditional love is what it brings. A mindset that understands it's not a have to, but a get to. It can't be earned even if we want to. It can't be bought because it's already been paid for. And it can't be faked, unwavering and committed, devoted and driven. People aren't born with passion. Passion is born in them. And it is no small task. What does passion look like, you ask? A healed ear and then taunted, wrongfully accused and then flaunted, crowned with thorns and severely flayed, cowardly abandoned and then betrayed, exhausted and dehydrated, yet still forgiving and motivated, nails in the hands and spear in the side, passion cries out to tell us die. It is finished, not life, but death. The tomb is empty and we have forever breath. His life for ours was the transaction. My friends, that is passion. Matt killed that video. Matt Matt put all the typography and everything. I was just blown away. He killed that video. He's a jack of all trades. Good morning, Woodland Hills. All right, accountability time. How many of you are usually in the 8.30? Just curious. Yeah, thank you for being honest. Thank you for being honest. You made an executive decision last night. You said, hey, we are not going to the 8.30 tomorrow, okay? I got a youngin. We're getting that extra hour of sleep. We're not losing that hour. Okay, well, we take an offering here every week at Woodland Hills. Yep, daylight savings really affected y'all. We take an offering here every week at Woodland Hills. There's, there's ways you guys can do it. There's offering boxes located right here in the foyer. There's the church center app. Uh, you can do it online or you can text the amount to 84321 for all you Gen Zers and Millennials. You can do that. Uh, one other quick thing. If you uh, didn't receive the elements when you came in here, please raise your hand and we can make sure our ushers can help you with that. We will take communion on the back end of service today instead of on the front end as we traditionally do. So just hold your hand up and they'll make sure they get it. So uh, we're kicking off a brand new series today. Keep your hand up and they'll get those to you. We're kicking off a brand new series today and Ted thought he would get his least passionate teaching team member to talk the topic of passion, okay? And, and so we're actually going to look at the triumphal entry. But what's something's really cool about passion in the name of this series, if you took your phone and looked up in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, literally if you looked up passion, the definition, 1A in the definition, is the sufferings of Jesus Christ. That, that is literally where the word originates from. It's from Jesus and what he did during the Passion Week or everything following Palm Sunday. Right? So if you didn't know, two Wednesdays ago was Ash Wednesday, which is the sign of the 40 days leading up to Easter. Right? So six and a half weeks out, and then Easter, which in my opinion as a Christian is the most important holiday we ever celebrate. Yeah, Christmas is awesome, virgin birth, that's never been done. But if there is no resurrection from death, then that virgin birth doesn't have nearly the importance as, as it does. And so this triumphal entry in this passion series is leading up to Easter, which in my opinion is the most important holiday we celebrate because he defeated death 
so you and I don't have to taste death, right? And, and so passion, you can be passionate about a lot of things, right? You can be passionate about your chiefs. You can be passionate about your sports. You can be passionate about politics. You can be passionate about the stock market. Be pa- and people know I'm a passionate person. And because I'm a passionate person, people have tried to get me into multi-level marketing schemes and sales jobs and selling cars and all these things. And I try to explain to them, no, I'm not passionate about those things. So I wouldn't sell ice to an Eskimo in those circumstances. You think I'm just passionate about Jesus because I believe in what I'm talking about, right? I don't believe in selling Rubbermaid or Arbonne or any of those things, right? I'm not passionate about that. So I wouldn't do great. You think I would because you think I'm passionate, but I'm actually, you see passion because of who it originates from, which is Jesus, right? And and the thing I love about passion, you, you can't fake it. Like, you, people that are passionate are passionate. It's real. Passion, you can't fake passion. We, we see that right away. And so the beginning of Passion Week is, is the triumphal entry. And, and this isn't the first triumphal entry, for those of you who didn't know. It, it's actually the second triumphal entry. So what happened with King David is he was about to be done being king. He's, he was on his way out. And the, the natural person in line was Solomon. Adonijah, also the son of King David, didn't like this. Solomon being the son of Bathsheba, right? Adonijah not, different moms. And, and, and so Adonijah didn't like this. And so he got with Abiathar, the high priest, and they were going to create a revolt. And he was going to force his way into the kingdom with power and triumph. Well, David knew about this. And so he says, you know what? We're going to put Solomon on a humble donkey and we're going to ride him into Jerusalem. And so that's exactly what it did. And it squelched out the revolt. It quieted down all these people that were going to try to raise up who they wanted to be king. And next in line was Solomon. So there's a parallel here. It's crazy, right? You have Solomon, who was full of idols and chased idols. And then you have the second triumphal entry, which is Jesus, who destroys all these idols in our life and forgives us for worshiping idols. Money, power, control, whatever it may be, sports, right? And then you have Solomon, who lived in adultery and affairs and sexual promiscuity. And then you have Jesus who comes in and forgives us of all the pornography and sexual promiscuity and sin. Then you have Solomon, who was the wisest man, it says, ever to live, but didn't always apply that wisdom. And then you have Jesus, who not asked if it's right or wrong, but rather asked the question, is it wise, and actually applied all that wisdom in his life. And so this is actually the second triumphal entry, see? And it's one of few stories that all four Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John gospel accounts write about. So it must have been a pretty significant event because there's a lot of things that Jesus did, but rarely do all four gospel writers talk about it. This one is all four. So we're actually going to look at two accounts of this today, Matthew and Luke, right? Starting in Luke chapter 19, verse 28 through 30, it says, After he said this, he went on ahead. Going up to Jerusalem. Something's really cool here. Like when you get into scripture, you start studying, it's crazy, okay? So we all know Jesus was born where? Bethlehem. Little town of Bethlehem. Good job. Some of you are awake. And so he was born in Bethlehem. Beth is literally bread. Lechem is house. So the bread of life was literally born in the house of bread. Well, now the Prince of Peace is going to go into the city of peace for his grand finale. Isn't that crazy? It's so neat how God does that stuff. So now you have the house of bread, Bethlehem, coming into the city of peace, the prince of peace. When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, the buddy system, right? Ladies, you didn't figure this out when you go to the restroom. Jesus had you guys beat way before that, okay? 
He had you all bit. He's on top of the buddy system. He sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter, you will find tied there a colt, a donkey. Okay. There's another name for donkey that we won't use in church, but there's a donkey. And, and, And here's the crazy thing, right? Donkeys are stubborn. We all know that. But especially that has never been ridden. Right. Untie it and bring it here. I could just see these two disciples that he sent on his way, looking at him like, wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. You want us to go grab a donkey that's never been ridden, that doesn't belong to us, and it's not going to be considered stealing and we're not going to get stoned. Uh, That's exactly what I want you to do. Go do it. Right? But what we understand in that moment, right, is crazy. In the disciples' mind, there's like, this is impossible. We can't do this. Like you're asking us to go steal someone's donkey, no consequences. There's, there's a misinterpretation of scripture that we use a lot in culture. And we're going to talk about crowds here in just a little bit. But one of those misinterpretations is that we say this a lot. God will not give me more than I can handle. That, that is not biblically accurate, ladies and gentlemen. You better believe God will give you more than you can handle. You don't suppose that the Red Sea was more than Moses could handle. You don't suppose that Goliath was more than David could handle. You don't suppose that the army was more than Gideon could handle. No, no, God does give you and I way more than we can handle. But what God doesn't do is He won't give us more than He can handle and thus our need to depend on Him. So so you might be in a season right now where you're like, I can't get through this, and you're right. But God can get you through this. And, and, and so these two disciples like, I can't pull this off. You're right. But God can. God can pull it off. How big is your God? Right? Matthew, now we're jumping over to the other gospel account, 21, 4, 4 through 5. He said, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying that this is how he's going to come. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, your king is coming to you humble. That's what a donkey resembled. was humility, right? Not like a war horse. A horse comes in pomp and pride and like, I'm going to come triumph. He didn't come riding in on a horse, even though he could have come riding in on anything he wanted to. But the sign and the paradox of the king of kings riding on a humble donkey. And he was going to ride into Jerusalem, the city of peace, this way, right? And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. There's something really significant here. This was a prophecy. This was in the prophet Zechariah. As a matter of fact, we see it right here in this prophecy. It, the triumphal entry was prophesied in Zechariah 9.9, right? And then it's fulfilled in Matthew 21, 4 through 11, which we just looked at. The odds of that being fulfilled are one in a hundred, okay? I'm going to show you why I'm getting this. Here's another prophecy, which you guys don't understand how crazy it is when you study this stuff. Jesus was betrayed by 30 pieces of silver, right? That was prophesied in Zechariah 11.12, you guys ever heard of inflation? Sure you have. You filled your gas tanks up this week, right? And so that was prophesied centuries before he was actually portrayed by Judas in Matthew 26, 15. Let me tell you why I'm pointing this prophecy out too. The Pharisees knew the Pentateuch. They knew the Torah. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the Dead Sea Scrolls. They knew the prophecies. And, and so you would think... They don't want Jesus to be who Jesus is saying he is. They don't want that to take place. They don't want to fulfill this Messiah being the Messiah and the person of Jesus. 
Yet they betray him for the exact amount of silver that was prophesied to validate he was who he said he was. The very people that don't want this to be validated are validating. Why not 31 pieces of silver or 29? 30? It's because they had no control over it. It's because they didn't dictate it. It was exactly how it said it was because God is in control and the very people that wanted to stop him couldn't even stop him by the exact amount that was prophesied over him. So here's the crazy thing. Those are just two prophecies. If eight of the prophecies were fulfilled, look at the astronomical odds of him fulfilling all these prophecies, right? The odds of you winning the lottery are one in 259 million. The odds of a man fulfilling eight prophecies are one in a lot of zeros, okay? Jesus did this. Actually, he fulfilled over 300 prophecies. Ladies and gentlemen, do you understand it's harder for you to be an atheist than it is a Christian when you understand the fulfillment of all of Jesus' prophecies? It's unbelievable what what, what Jesus fulfilled. And all that's left to be fulfilled is that what we still know in the book of Revelation or Daniel that's going to still take place, right? Right? It goes on to say in Luke, back, now we're going back to the Gospel of Luke 19.31, if anyone asked you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that, 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 like, like, like I, I, I work in a big company and there's sometimes I ask my friends that are up higher than me, it's like, hey, I, I, need, I need you to, to make that email or that phone call. It's going to get done when you ask. If I ask, it's not going to get done as fast. Right? Some of you in here know you work for companies too and you just say, well, I'm going to say the boss said it even if the boss said it because I know it will get done. Right? That's the ultimate trump card of just dropping that. Hey, we're taking this donkey. No, you're not. The Lord needs it. Okay. Right? It's the ultimate trump card. And what does it tell us? It tells us that no name in this world has more power than the name above all names. As a matter of fact, your scripture says that demons shudder. They shudder at the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus has power. Say it in your life, Jesus. Right? Jesus Jesus has power. The name of Jesus is the name above all names. And it has power. It has power to cover your sins. It has power to make demons shudder. It has power to bring death to life. Jesus' name is the most powerful name ever. And he says, hey, just go tell them Jesus needs it. They walked with a little more confidence after he said that. They might have skipped to go get that donkey. They, 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 man, okay, done, easy. So Luke 19, 32-35. So those who were sent departed and found as, as he told them. Wow, big surprise. Of course, he's Jesus. Has anything he told you not been fulfilled? Right? They found it just as he said they'd find it. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked him, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord needs it, sucker." Right? That was, that was it. Like, like, what, you're going to come at me? Hey, I got a trump card. Here you go. Jesus needs it. Period, right? And so there's something important here, right? Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, I, I don't know what it looks like. They just kind of, here we go, Jesus. Hup, and they sat him up on the colt. There, there's something crazy about this. Remember, Scripture tells us that this colt had never been ridden. It had never been ridden. Right? So we don't know why. Was it an ornery donkey? Was it, was it stubborn? Was, was it uh, biting people? Like, and so the first time you put anything on anything, uh, whether it be a donkey, a mule, or, or a horse, all, all of you farmers know that they don't just take that, okay, yeah, come on my back, whatever you want. <laughs> uh, no. You, you know that. So, so what's crazy, though, is there's no indication that this donkey bucked or kicked back or did anything. So it tells us this. 
Not only does Jesus save the world, he's in control of the whole world, including creation, including this animal. Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper says it best, and I love this quote. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Ladies and gentlemen, it is all his. Your 401k, your car, your house, your boat, it's all his. You're just a steward. You, 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 you just get it for a little time, then you give it back. As a matter of fact, Psalm 5010 says he owns every beast of the forest, every creation. They're all his. Everything you have is his. Have you ever seen a U-Haul follow a hearse to a funeral? The answer is no. It all goes back in the box. You don't take anything with you. It's all his. You cry out, mine? No, it's his. And when he sits on this donkey, it's a proclamation of, I control everything. Even one of the most stubborn animals that we know in human existence. Yes, I'm even sovereign over this donkey. And it's going to peacefully ride me into Jerusalem. Everything is his. You and I own nothing. We are merely stewards. And when we go like this, rather than like this, we somehow think we've become God and we get to control and dictate how we steward what he's given us. No, no, no. He gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord forever. It's all his. And what we do with it is our opportunity to glorify and exalt him by the way we manage our resources, by the way we manage our finances, by the way we manage our families. It's all his. Our kids, every, it's all his. He's sovereign over all. It goes on to say in Matthew 21, 8 through 11, most of the crowd sped their cloaks on the road and others cut branches. This is where we get the term Palm Sunday. They cut palm branches and they're waving them at him as he's coming into Jerusalem. And, and, and this donkey's not sprinting. I mean, it's, it's a slow, uh, I would be awkward. I'm a little introvert. That would be awkward for me just sitting on this donkey and people are just waving fans on me. I'm like, <laughs> right? But, 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 but the humility fits him, right? The king of kings who could have been served decides to serve instead, right? And so from the trees and they spread them on the road and the crowds, this is crazy, right? We're going to get to this. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him, they were shouting this, Hosanna, which means save us. So, so they believe this is the one that can save them. They believe this is the king of kings. They're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Save us. Save us, Jesus. Yes, save us. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the city of peace, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. There's something really important to know about this word right here. These crowds. Right? So the very same people that are sitting there saying, Hosanna, yes, blessed be the name of the highest son of David. Yes, you are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords. Yes, yes. Just a couple days later, you know what they're shouting? Crucify him. Crucify him. Be weary of following the crowd. Be weary of following the crowd. The same people that were praising him as king a few days later are sucked into the crowd and yelling out, crucify him. Matter of fact, Jesus had a lot to say about crowds. Matthew 7, 14, he says, small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few will find it. As a matter of fact, as Jesus' crowds grew, he would preach some pretty radical messages to make his crowds really small. Oh, that's a big crowd. Hey, love your enemies. Um, I'm out. Right? Heaven is not going to be crowded with crowd followers. Heaven is going to be crowded with people who trusted and believed Jesus was who he said he was. Period. End of discussion. Right? 
Crowds don't save you when you take your last breath. And in this day and culture with social media, we see a lot of crowd following and a lot of crowd surfing for a word picture. Just wherever the crowd takes us, that's where we're going to go. This doesn't follow the crowd, especially in the culture today that you and I live in. George Barna says less than 10% Christians actually have a biblical worldview, which means they say they believe in Jesus, but they don't really follow what this says when it comes to marriage. They don't really follow what this says when it comes to loving people who don't think like you, act like you, and behave like you. They don't really follow this when it says to come how you raise your children. They don't really follow this when it says any other things. They just want the get out of hell free card, but to have a biblical worldview would mean I couldn't follow the crowd. So I want Jesus... But I don't want what that all entails. You don't get your cake and eat it too. Matter of fact, Pastor Josh Howerton did a phenomenal study just recently and he posted this thread on the crowd and what the crowd tells you and what the actual stats are. So I'm going to read through these. Katie will put up the slides so you can see them. Don't worry about reading all the slides. Just pay attention to the data I'm giving you and then we can post the notes later on the sermon notes, okay? So here's the crowd. Evangelicals aren't really pro-life, they're just pro-birth. They don't care about babies after they're born. Statistics, conservative Christians adopt more children than any other population segment, more than doubling the norm. The crowd, this church is sexually repressive and anti-sex. It's a purity culture. The stats, church conservative Christians are in a category with the most fulfilling sex lives. Okay, these are just stats proving it. You don't got to get caught up in the stats. Culture, the church is emotionally repressive and destructive to your mental health. The actual data, regular church attendance dramatically improves your mental health. The only people in the U.S. whose mental health improved in 2020 was regular church attenders. The crowd, evangelicals don't care about the poor. They just care about political power. The stats... Church-going Christians are exponentially more generous to the poor with both time and money than the rest of the population. The crowd, the church is oppressive to women, to women, a tool of the abusive patriarchy and creates toxic relationships for women. The actual data, conservative Christian gender traditional church-going women are in the happiest relationships in America and abuse decreases by 50%. The crowd, church is irrelevant or ideologically and emotionally harmful to raising children. The data, regular church attendance significantly decreases all three of the big three dangers of adolescence. Depression, substance abuse, and sexual promiscuity. The last two, the crowd, the church doesn't help your marriage. The divorce rates are the same. The data, conservative Christians who attend church are regularly, attend church regularly are 35% less likely to divorce. And the last one, the crowd, church is a waste of time. The data, regular church attendance literally gives you more time, increasing life expectancy up to seven years. You want to follow the crowd? The, the, the crowd will convince you that the truth is truth when the truth is not truth. This is truth. The, the, the crowd will convince you of things that aren't true. The, the, you don't believe me. Look at Nazi Germany. The, the crowd will get you to convince that something is good even when it's horribly evil. Jesus didn't tell us to follow the crowd. He said follow him. One person. One person, right? Don't, don't worry about 
how many people you're following or how many people are following something. Remember, Hitler had millions of followers. Jesus had 12. And, and we're worried about the crowd and what the crowd's saying. You, you need to know this. Crowds also will tell you how you're saved. Crowds will say you're saved by being a good person. Romans 3.10, no one is righteous, not even one. You're not saved um, based on how you... We're not good. There's only one who is good and his name is Jesus. You are saved by no other name except for Jesus, right? Crowds say that you're saved by being a conservative or a Republican. Newsflash, there is no political party in heaven. No Democrat, no Republican, no American flag in heaven. None. There's Jesus. And that's how you're saved, is through Jesus. You're not saved by what your political views are. Crowds say that you're saved by feeling saved. Well, I feel saved. Well, that's great. Your feelings are real. They're just not reliable. Okay? You don't feel your way into heaven. I don't care what talk show hosts have told you. Right? There's not multiple ways. There's one way. John 14, 6 says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one shall come to the Father except through me. Period. Right? Crowds say you're saved by doing good deeds. Oh, really? Because Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Our our deeds will not get us into heaven. If you walked in here today and you think that if you can just outweigh the balance or the scales that you're getting to heaven, you are gravely mistaken. It has nothing to do with what you've done, but everything with what Jesus has done. And praise Him for that. That's the good news. Can you imagine every other worldview and religion that wakes up every morning thinking they got to somehow work their way into heaven? How exhausting. And we have such an amazing Savior. He's like, no, no, no. Don't exhaust yourself. My life was a free gift. I did all the work because you're incapable of doing the work for yourself. And it's not about your good deeds. Now, when we become a regenerated believer in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, yes, we will produce good works. We will produce fruit. But that's not a result. It's trying to get salvation. That's a work that the Holy Spirit, and once again, that Jesus is doing in us, not us in and of ourselves, right? The crowd says that you're saved by spiritual experiences. Some of you went to Woodstock in 1970. You thought that saved you. No, that was just some really good shrooms. That's all that was. Okay? You're not not saved by spiritual experiences. You're not saved just because you went to some big conference and you just felt this crazy emotional feeling. No, no, no. You're not saved by your experiences. You're saved by Jesus, right? The crowd says you're saved by growing up in a Christian home. Oh, I don't care if you had the biggest prayer warrior mom ever. That doesn't save you. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He has children. End of list. That's it. And he wants an intimate and personal relationship with each and every single one of us. It doesn't matter how faithful our parents were. It's an individual, personal relationship. You aren't saved just by the Christian home you grew up in or the school you went to or the church you go to. You're not saved just because you go to Woodland Hills. It doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. And finally, crowds say you're saved by denominations. All Baptists are getting into heaven. All method. No, wrong again. All faithful and abiding followers of Christ that believe that he lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, was crucified on the cross for our sins, was buried. We're going up to Easter, empty tomb, came back, and he's going to come back. That's how you're saved. That you confess with your mouth and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord that he died on the cross for your sins and that you can't clean yourself up. That is how you're saved. You believe Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of this world. No other name, no other way, no other possibility. 
Amen? Amen. Goes on to say, triumphal entry, Luke 18, 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. They're mad. This guy's gaining a lot of momentum. He's gaining a lot of traction. They're like, stop this guy. Like they really believe he's the Messiah. Yeah, knuckleheads, and you validated but in a couple of days of giving them 30 pieces of silver that he is the Messiah. You have no power over it, right? He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. You, you want to talk about how much the crowd influences us? Some of us let stones share Jesus more with people that don't know Jesus than we do. You, you guys have a gift of eternity for those of you that have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and you won't even share it. You don't have to have the gifts of evangelist to give somebody that ticket. Like, like it, it, It's crazy. How much do you have to hate somebody if you know that they're going to spend eternity in hell and you have the way out and you won't share it with them? I, I, I think most of you know I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Neither one of my parents were, were regenerated believers. And I got to lead my mom to the Lord and then I got to baptize her. And then my dad and I's relationship is significantly growing and healthier than it's ever been. And, and he'd come visit when I had kids. And so he's starting to be in his, his grandson's life. And it's really awesome. And him and I were golfing at Ozark National about seven or eight years ago. And, and we're up there golfing. And every time I've hung around my dad and stepmom, I share Jesus with them. It, it's just in me. Like when I care about somebody and I love somebody, I want them to be in heaven with me. Even people I don't really know very well, I want them to be in heaven with me. Because heaven sounds a lot better than hell, if you're to ask me. And, and so I'm with my dad and I'm sharing Jesus with him. And, and he says to me, he says, I really love how much our relationship's growing. I really love hanging out. I said, I just, he just, he says, I wish we could hang out and Jesus didn't always come up. And, and I said, Dad, can I explain something? So we both grew up in San Diego. He grew up in Southern California. I grew up in San Diego. And, and we're both really big Chargers fans. You know you're legit Chargers fans when you're Chargers fan because there's no bandwagon there, okay? And, 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 so, and so I just said, let, let me tell you this way. Let's pretend the Chargers made the Super Bowl, Dad. Now we're really talking miracles. And so, so let's just pretend the Chargers made it to the Super Bowl. And, and I had an unlimited amount of field passes to the Super Bowl. Would you be disappointed if I didn't give you one? And he said, of course. And, and I said, that's why I'm so passionate about sharing Jesus with you. I have something better than unlimited field passes to the Super Bowl of your favorite team. And he said, I understand why you're so passionate when you put it that way. You have the greatest pass you could ever hand to someone ever. You, they could decide if they want to go to the game, but we're not even handing them the pass. We're letting the rock shout out louder than we are, and rocks are dumb. Rocks have no IQ. And Jesus said, if you don't say something, even the rocks will cry out. And you have a pass to hand somebody. Now, if they want to go to the game, that's up to them. But, but you're, they're not, you're not even getting them the pass. And you have an unlimited amount of them. Like, there's no end to it. And it's crazy because it's so important. When you're talking about the crowd, like the crowd doesn't want to follow this. But I, but I know how this story ends. I know who wins. Guess what? Putin doesn't win. China doesn't win. The Middle East doesn't win. I know who wins. So I'm not worried about the crowd. I'm not worried about what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. I'm not, I'm not exhausting my time worrying about those things because I'm following the one who is sovereign over everyone and everything. And I got passes. So I, I, don't, I don't know if nukes are going to start going crazy or not. I'm, I'm not worried about it. But, but if they do, I know I got passes. I got sideline passes right there, front row seat. I'm going to pass them out. And every time you come in these doors, and you know every time you've heard me preach, Jesus is going to come up because I got passes. And so I don't care how you came in here today. 
And what you think you got to do to clean yourself up, you don't. Jesus does it. Jesus does the work. And he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey in humility to let people know, I'm not coming to condemn you. I'm coming to save you. And I don't need all the attention. I'm going to live in humility. The most humble person ever to walk this earth could have been praised and plotted, but nope. I'm going to come in humility. And I'm going to serve and give my life as a ransom to many. And so when you came in here, we handed you some communion. Which, 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 this, which this all leads up to this, right? The triumphal entry, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And, and, he's, in, and he's in Jerusalem and he still teaches a couple things. And, and, and then it leads up to the Last Supper. Which at that Last Supper, he recognized that Judas is going to betray him. He calls him out right there in front of all of his people. And he says, hey, the person that's going to betray me is sitting here right here eating with us. And, and, and he's at the Last Supper and he's eating with the disciples right before he's betrayed. Right before Peter goes crazy and cuts off a dude's ear and then Jesus heals it. And then, and then he's tried and wrongfully accused and abused. And, and he's sitting at this table at the Last Supper with his disciples. The last time he gets to eat with them. And, and this is where we get communion, which we're about to partake in for those of us that are believers and have trusted Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. And he's sitting at this Last Supper. And and he explains to them why they're going to do this. Why communion is important. And and he takes the bread and he breaks it. And when he breaks it, he says, hey, this is my body that's broken for you. It's about to be whipped, flesh stripped, crown of thorns, ribs, everything just shattered. Like, pierced side with the spear. Like, this body was broken for you. When you eat this bread, do this in remembrance of me. And And then he takes the cup of the wine in front of his disciples, and he, and he says, and this, is, this represents my blood. It's about to be shed for you all over the cross, all over the whipping post, all over, and, and a trail of it all the way to Calvary. But this blood will cover a multitude of sins as far as the east is from the west. When you drink of this cup, remember that you're forgiven. But he, but he says, before you take in this act of communion, you need to examine yourself examine yourself and one make sure you have a relationship with jesus christ because he says communion isn't for the non-believer communion is for the believer those who have trusted in jesus and and he says then examine yourself before you take this act of communion so i want to give you a second to do that just to examine your heart see if there's any way in you that's offensive to the lord confess that to him and know that he takes that and then and then when you're ready after you examine yourself Take of the bread and drink of the cup. John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to purify us from all unrighteousness so if, if you didn't take communion today because you don't know if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ we got a prayer team that's up here after every service 
They would love to pray with you. They would love to have a conversation with you. They would love to talk to you. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the greatest filled pass I can ever hand you. It's one that gets into heaven. A crowd isn't going to get you into heaven. Being a good person isn't going to get you into heaven. Showing up to church isn't going to get you to heaven. Christ and Christ alone is the way to heaven. And so as we reflect on this Passion Week that we're quickly approaching, as we think about Easter, right? May we beat the rocks to crying out. May, may, may this place be so packed on Easter Sunday because you have completely outshouted the rocks for those of you that just partook in communion. Because that act told me that you do have faith in Jesus. Now may we go share those passes. Because ladies and gentlemen, that is passion. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for this church, its leadership. And Lord, I'm just blown away by your humility. The way you entered the city of peace as the Prince of Peace. That you could have done whatever you wanted and you chose humility. You chose servanthood. You chose grace and mercy and forgiveness. And you did a work that we can't do. God, it's not about us trying to clean ourselves up. You do the cleaning. So we confess that. We confess our sins to you. We confess our need for you. And we confess that you are Lord of Lords and you are ruler of this universe and you have Russia and Ukraine and China and everything in your hand. You are sovereign over all, God, and we recognize that and thank you and find comfort in that today. We love you and we praise you. And it's in your mighty and matchless, your high and your holy, your powerful and pure name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. have a great week of worship, y'all. I love you.